Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Please join me in the prayer of illumination. Living God, help us so to hear your word, that we may truly understand, that, understanding, we may believe, and believing, we may follow your way in all faithfulness, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Amen. <coughs> From the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 5 through 17. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take good care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, Eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. From the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat from the fruit of the garden's trees, but not from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, Don't eat from it, and don't touch it, or you will die. The snake said to the woman, You won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food, and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he hated. it. Then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. From the book of John, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, God loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The word of the Lord. Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. At one time you were like a dead person because of the things you did wrong in your offenses against God. You used to live like people of this world. You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. This is the spirit of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons whose lives are characterized by disobedience. At one time, you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted to do so that, so that you were children headed for punishment just like everyone else. However, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of the great love that he has for us. You were saved by God's grace, and God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with Christ Jesus. God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This salvation is God's gift. It is not something you possessed. It is something that you did that you can be proud of. Instead, we are God's accomplishment, created in Christ Jesus to do good things. God planned for these good things to be the way that we live our lives. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God endures forever.
A friend gave me a copy of Nick Hornby's quirky little novel, How to Be Good, last summer and suggested I read it. <laughs> Enough said. Uh, the novel follows the struggles of an ordinary couple, Katie and David, who, who live there in London with their two kids. Katie is a physician. She cares deeply for her patients. She's a wonderful parent. She recycles. She worries about the perils of global warming, and she stands up and fights back against racial aggressions that happen around her at her place of work. Her husband David is a journalist, and almost no one would describe David as a good guy. He's bitter, incessantly exasperated, and severely underemployed. Each week, his main work is to produce a spiteful column for the local newspaper called The Angriest Man in Holloway. Think of it as an extended rant about everything, well, just about everything, kids and older adults and buses and bus service and the grocery store, and nothing is safe from David's acerbic scrutiny. As the novel opens, David and Katie's relationship is wobbly, so much that it's Hard not to be sympathetic when the core of their relationship crumbles into dust. It's almost comprehensible at some level. It's also very easy to be sympathetic, for David is not a very good guy. And then inexplicably things change. David meets Dr. DJ Goodnews, and his life is transfigured. Emerging, he resolves to be good, exceptionally good, he starts giving away all his family's possessions. He gives away his kids' computers. Imagine how that went. He invites a homeless man to live in a spare bedroom in their flat. He even begins to organize the neighbors around him into a coalition to take care of the needs of the homeless women and men who live on the streets around them. David's new approach to life makes Katie uneasy and guilty. She's always been the good one, the perfect soul, and now David is on the path for sainthood, and he wins the award for the Community Volunteer of the Year. And Katie is now the toxic one. What does it really mean, then, she asks, to be good? What does it mean to be really good? Wernby writes clearly and honestly. He doesn't settle for those easy answers to Katie's question. David's clay-footed efforts to be good often backfire explosively and comically. And Katie's search for respect and honesty and acceptance and the path to a good life lead her to try out the local church community. It's a poignant, maddening, and often very funny story. And neither David nor Katie are finally cast as a hero or a villain. Instead, both of them come off it's frighteningly normal, flawed, but fully humans. Katie and David are two imperfect souls searching for an authentic way to live. They are trying to be good. Some years ago, I shepherded a Presbyterian confirmation class of very laconic ninth graders across the street to visit with our Jewish rabbi and to explore some of the common themes of our messianic faiths. 
We entered there with Rabbi Alexander a classroom where a tent, a crude tent had been constructed in a classroom. It was there for the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Booths, the experiential time in which the Jews remember their wandering in the desert, living in tents and subsisting on water and manna. And attached to the two posts were two simple signs, from God on the left to God on the right. There simply and dramatically said the rabbi was represented the whole of life, from God to God and everything in between living in a tent. And kind of without knowing it, the rabbi's reflection is a commentary on Ephesians that we read earlier. The section of the gospel is widely thought to be a baptismal liturgy, or think of it as a confirmation curriculum for young people, for as we as the church prepare our young people for confirmation, for baptism, or for a reaffirmation of baptism, they are being prepared for something grander and larger. What most needs to be impressed on candidates on the occasion of confirmation or baptism is this idea that they're being set apart for God and for God's service in a world that's completely and utterly divorced from its creator and dead at its core, in a world that's confused in every way. It is to give them the tools to interpret what's happening in the Christian life. And that's what Paul, writing in Ephesians, does for us. He interprets. It's not an academic exercise for interpreting in this way as a usual visual and necessary activity for every community. It's what a parent does when a child asks, what's that noise? And it's a pack of coyotes yowling in the night. Or, or what happens when a child asks, mom, do dogs go to heaven? It's what happens when a patient worries to a physician about those persistent headaches or asks how a virus is transmitted. Teachers do it too, as do attorneys and financial advisors and friends and partners and our neighbors, as do churches. We do it all the time. Interpret the story of the Christian faith with choirs and with the bread broken and the cup poured out and with a baptismal font and with young people participating in worship, and in Mr. Rogers visiting us from time to time. We act out our story and interpret it visually and audibly so that all can know the story. And yes, kids, we even do it with long and boring sermons. That's part of the deal. We interpret our faith. What does it mean to become Christian? Or... What does it mean to stay Christian in these days? Ephesians answers these questions vividly and experientially. You are dead. You are dead through trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of the world. But now by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. To recognize this announcement is relevant to us to swallow even one ounce of this claim, we have to confess a cluster of truths that are about ourselves we'd rather not face, that we are captive, wholly and completely to cultural and political and financial and spiritual forces over which 
we have little or no control. And these powers have drained the life out of us and we're unable to think or crawl our way free. We are literally face down on the tile floor in the kitchen and we are in urgent need of a God who comes to rescue us. In short, we need saving. We need to be undead. But Paul's words hang out there for us. You were dead. Spiritually speaking, that's Paul's assessment of anyone who has a life that's outside of Christ. You were dead. And those who are dead, well, they can't do anything for themselves, can they? That's why there's one piece of good news that the Bible offers us. It's the good news that sparked the Reformation that generated the Protestants and trickled down into Presbyterians today. It's the good news that's transformed lives for several millennia. And the news is this, by grace, you were saved. We have a hard time accepting this reality that Paul delivers. We'd prefer the truth lay elsewhere. In the venerable comic Peanuts, Lucy had a score to settle with Charlie Brown, and so they were racing around the inside of the house again and again. I'll get you, Charlie Brown, I'll get you. I'm going to knock your block off, Charlie Brown. And Charlie, who's been running at full speed, stops on a dime and turns and confronts Lucy. Wait a minute. Hold everything, he says. We can't carry on like this. We have no right to act this way. The world is filled with problems, people hurting other people, people not understanding each other. Now, as we of children can't, can't solve our relatively minor problems, then how do we expect to? And at that moment, Lucy turns and levels a blow at Charlie Brown and knocks him out cold. She interrupts and says, I had to hit him quick. He was starting to make sense. <laughs> and so it is with the Apostle Paul. We read these words from Ephesians and they begin to make sense. We once were dead. How do we live a good life? It's the story at the heart of Nick Hornby's novel with David and Katie, and it's with us. We have innumerable ways to kill ourselves, to kill the world around us, to kill those we hold most precious and dear. We can accept the process to some degree if it happens in a 12-step program down in the church basement or in a book group or in a group as we retreat to our cottage by the lake. Or we can even mask it by incessantly volunteering at the kids' school or down at the homeless shelter. And every, everything we encounter in this text is a true and basic description of ourselves and it sends us scrambling for safer ground. The fact of the matter is, is that the gospel is at its root a rescue story. Even Jesus' name, as William Plater, the theologian, reminds us, means the Lord saves. The Lord saves us. We know the world is messy and incomplete, and we all struggle with this expansive, loving, and forgiving and forgetting God who approaches us with this grace. Time ago, another pastor and a mentor serving a neighboring Presbyterian church in an agricultural region of North Carolina was once called to come and visit and pray for 
the home of a hard-working tenant farmer where all the children in the house had become infected with typhoid fever. The mother claimed they probably got it from drinking the water in the pond that they shared with the farm animals. The farmers promised us a new well for years, but he never gets around to it. And then just two weeks later, the same pastor got an urgent call from the large house on the property, in which the landowner lived with his family. Seems his children, too, were ill from typhoid fever. And the circumstances meant that his only son and heir was dangerously ill and close to death. And he called on his pastor for prayer. As he paced the floor in his richly paneled den, he shouted, No expense must be spared, no stone left unturned. This child's life is of the utmost importance to me. God, you've done it for others. I beg you now to do it for me. And so it happened. All while the pastor pondered in perplexed awe about how such concern for one child could coexist in the same heart with such utter indifference for the lives of four other children. This is our human condition. It's our near-death experience, and we can either blow up in anger or fall down in despair, or we can focus on that strand of mercy that exists there and seek to build upon it and enlarge it. There's so much in Paul's message. For God, the bigger picture he has in mind is that this God deep in love and rich in mercy by free undeserved acceptance accelerated your life and your spirit and set you in a safe place in the constant presence of Jesus Christ. You are now alive not simply in order to enjoy God's grace and God's acceptance. You've been created again as God's work of genius for two distinct purposes. To show what God can do through Jesus Christ to transform human beings but also to serve the great human need by engaging in the good works which reflect the nature of God's gracious love for the rest of the community. This passage says that we are not agents of our own salvation. That much is clear. And we know that from our own salvation and from what Paul describes. At least we're not enabled to initiate our own salvation. For it comes from outside of us this salvation is God's gift. It's not something you possessed. It's not something you did that you can be proud of. Instead, you are, as Becca said, you are God's accomplishment. But we are. We are agents of our own spiritual growth. And we are the directors of our engagement in the world of great need. That done in partnership with the Holy Spirit and with the company of God's people who surround us. We work in tandem with the Holy Spirit as we take up Paul's invitation to go and to serve the nation, our community, and the world. What to do? Where to start? You might ask. Well, look for the broken places in our community and go to those spaces. Look for the places where God's heart is breaking and go there. Seek out those ministries that Join you in partnership with other people of faith and courage. Seek and ask and question and follow your sisters and brothers who have gone ahead of you because undoubtedly there is someone further down the path. 
where to start. Quick trip to Cass in Detroit might turn your head inside out and upside down about how it is that people's lives can be redeemed and restored and set on a path. Or you could spend a Tuesday evening at Circles in Ypsilanti. They need you to be friends to people on that path from poverty to sustainability and to flourishing. I'm sure there are people here that could take you under their wing. You could have a conversation with someone on our Philippines mission team about the power of an enduring and enduring lasting partnership with friends thousands of miles away. Paul's invitation gets translated into granular and specific opportunities that are set in front of us. And his invitation is to come alive to the power of God and to move into that liminal space of human need and your capacity, in fact, your calling to be an agent of justice, mercy, and friendship. You are dead. That's a piece of bad news no matter how you slice it. But now you have been saved by grace and are alive in Christ. You are, in the way of Ephesians now, undead. That's a piece of good news so grand that it's almost past description. But the gospel is here to remind you and tell you that this good news is and can be your good news. Alive in Christ. Alive to the goodness of God and all of life to serve the church and the world with all the energy, courage, and imagination that we can muster. We give thanks to God for God's great gift. Amen and amen. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Indeed, blessed are you, O Christ our Lord, for teaching among us the radical hope of God, teaching grace to a world bent on vengeance, teaching love to a world bent on destruction, teaching peace to a world bent on tearing itself apart. You were there. Your word was there, even to the point of death itself. Even faced with terror and hatred and the brokenness of the world, you rose again to new life, to new creation, to resurrection, that we might know something other than the dust, that we might expect something other than the end, that we might work for something other than ourselves. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, And upon these your gifts of bread and cup, that the bread we break together and the cup we share together may retell our common stories, our common grace together, and the communion of the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one in whose life and death you have torn down our divisions. May we be united with every corner of your story, united in hope, united in vision, united in purpose, united in ministry in every place. Send us with a spirit of courage, a spirit of power and love, that we may be witnesses in all creation to the unending story of your word breathing life into the dust. Keep us faithful and fruitful and hopeful and peaceful until we come at last to the table of your kingdom to feast with all your saints in the joy of your eternal realm with you and with your word, through Christ and in Christ, who also taught us to pray. Our Father, who Who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy Thy kingdom kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.